From Vermont Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. If you could just introduce yourself for the recording. Sure. Um, I'm Amanda Sorrell, and I've been under the supervision of the Department of Corrections since 2004, currently um, on parole, but I've spent a lot of time um, incarcerated, well over 10 years of that time um, incarcerated for nonviolent crimes. How long have you been out of the facility Um, for? Almost a year, which is a record for me. Um, most women, most people incarcerated usually, you know, last less than 90 days, um, upon release before being returned to the facility for some reason. Myself, um, prior to this, the, the longest I've stayed out, I think was five months. So this is definitely a record and, um, making parole is huge. Something that I, for a long time, didn't think I was capable of, you know, kind of reserved myself to the idea that I was sort of stuck in this really crazy cycle of, using and incarceration for using. Amanda went to prison in 2004. She robbed a store to pay for drugs, then ran away from a police officer at a court appearance. Over the years, she would get released and then arrested again for violating the terms of her release. Which has ended me up with a total of a 20-year sentence for essentially stealing $400 and running. Over those years, the state was moving its female prisoners around to different locations. In 2011, they landed at the Chittenden Regional Correctional Facility, or CRCF, in South Burlington. Within six months, advocates started reporting that the conditions there were alarming. I've been to every facility the women have been in in Vermont in the last 15 years. So that's Windsor, Dale, Northwest, and South Burlington. Up until CRCF, the other facilities I have been in have all had a real focus on real-world skills, giving women skills to go home with, job training, education, and really trying to keep women connected to their children. CRCF is the only facility that I've ever been in that basically has none of that. You know, we have a saying, if you weren't a criminal when you got here, you will be when you leave. Hmm. You know, you you kind of come in, you know, sometimes for, for a really minor infraction, and you come into jail and you're stuck there for months, around people who, who, like me, who've been in the system for a long time. And suddenly you start to create more offenders. Like, you know, some of these kids come in and, and they stole $100 worth of stuff. And they leave there, you know, learning how to get away with selling drugs. Or There's, there's so many things that can happen in that system because there's nothing but time on their hands. When you were first moved to that facility. What were your first impressions like? I mean, do you remember going in there for the first so, time? So I was actually in the facility in Swan the day they were supposed to move to the new facility in South Burlington. I was getting released. The mo- literally got out the same day. And I remember I was working with one of the women from the domestic violence. She like worked in the jail, and but I was seeing her when I was on the street. And I asked her a few weeks after the move, I said, how is it? And she said, it's a pit of despair. You know, and I knew, I knew that I'd have to go there. And that was scary. And when I went there, she was, she was right. That place is like, just when I think about it, I like my stomach drops. I feel like sick. I've done a lot of time. And, um, you know, jail time doesn't usually scare me, but that place scares me. It's very, um, oh man, it's really kind of a house of horrors. For a lot of reasons, I think. When I first went there, I, I I was appalled at the conditions. I was appalled at the plumbing, the way everything's falling apart, the lack of 
access to medical care, the the food. It, it just seemed like everything was the bottom of the barrel. It seemed like it was the worst, the worst of everything. I I was, and every time that I thought I'd seen. Like, God, I can't get any worse than this. Then I would go to the next thing, you know, and it would be just as bad. And I'm like, what is going on in this place that it's this, this bad? What's a typical day like in there? I mean, what what would you do on um, a given day? In other facilities, it isn't like this. But in CRCF, it's very limited. You will get up um, in the morning and you will go to breakfast with your unit. And you're not allowed to socialize with any other unit. So if you see anybody outside of your unit while you're in the hallway, you can't talk to them and you will go to breakfast you will have about 20 minutes to eat your breakfast and then as a group you will all go back to your unit where you will then be locked in the unit with anywhere from 15 to 30 people depending on the size of your unit there's a lot of fighting uh, there's no fresh air you can't open a window if you try to complain that it's too hot or too cold basically you know the officers are like too bad the bathroom facilities are not enough for everybody I think there's, uh, in, in-house too, there's one bathroom with two toilets and another bathroom with three for 35 people. And then there's four showers, but you can only shower, only two of them work. <laughs> so you're talking like 30-something people sharing two showers. You know, um, it, it gets to be really crazy. You're basically living on top of each other, um, up to four women in a, like a eight by 10 cell. And, uh, it breeds a lot of, like I said, a lot of fighting, a lot of bickering and arguing and unnecessary drama because there's no outlet. There's there's no ability to, like, get off the unit, go mingle with other people, go to a class, go learn a skill, go outside. She was right. It's like, you know, it's like a pit of despair. People get really, really depressed. People get, um, some people get really agitated um, and have to be, you know, heavily medicated to even be able to, to stay there because it's just, you know, people kind of go crazy. Earlier this year, we learned about a new wave of complaints about the conditions at CRCF. We found that in the 14 months after January 2018, inmates filed over 1,400 grievances or formal complaints. We've tried to get copies of those records, but the Department of Corrections has withheld them, saying they include confidential information. <laughs> Lawmakers are aware that the facility is in bad shape, but they're finding that there aren't easy answers on what to do about it. So we've been looking every place in the woman's facility for a number of years, knowing that the Chittenden County facility in South Burlington is not adequate for male or females. So now we're at the point where we need to replace the facility. Whether people like it or not, we need to replace the facility. So the Capitol Bill, in general, has a lot of different state building, state agency funding uh, pieces to it. And within this, it has about $250,000, which is going to go towards planning uh, for uh, construction of a new facility, a new women's prison facility. Our reporter, Kit Norton, has been following the Capitol Bill in the House Institutions Committee. And folks who say this is necessary are saying, well, the one and only women's prison that is in the state is really in tough shape and, and needs to be upgraded, needs to be updated desperately. So right now, starting to replace the Chittenden County facility, before we even open a door to allow anybody in, you're seven years out right now. It doesn't get built in a year. 
We have got to start the wheels rolling. And so this is what this money was, was put forward to in order to plan for a new construction site, et cetera, et cetera. However, what the ACLU has said and other advocates, that, including the attorney general um, and, and others, was that, listen, we first should be putting money towards a study of what they call incarceration alternatives, which is basically rehabilitation programs ways of, of making sure that some of these women are able to uh, heal from some of the, the traumas that they have experienced during their life that may have caused them to end up incarcerated and are really attempts of cutting down the prison population in Vermont uh, in general. The ACLU, our supporters and allies have expressed concerns that this legislation would commit a quarter million dollars towards evaluating new prison construction before fully evaluating the other available options including step-down facilities, treatment, and counseling. In short, planning for new prison construction or evaluating new prison construction before fully examining or implementing those policy reforms still on the table, policies that will determine the scope and need for new prisons, in our view, puts the cart before the horse. And so this is really the, the, main, the main debate. You have these folks who say, listen, this prison's in really bad shape. We would be doing a disservice to the people who are already incarcerated if we did not put this money towards studying a new facility. And then you have folks on the other side saying, okay, that may be true. However, we really desperately need money to go towards a study that will look at ways of cutting down the prison population in Vermont. That seems like a tough spot because it seems like both of those things can kind of be true at the same time. Like that sure. they would love to see money go towards fixing up this facility that's falling apart or, or building a replacement and also reducing the uh, number of people incarcerated, those two things theoretically could happen at the same time if they had the money to fund it. Exactly. You know, it, it always comes down to, to how much money you have and how much money you're willing to allocate towards it. And this is where I think it is a really difficult debate because you have folks going, well, this is the priority right now. We have X amount of money that we can spend on this right now. What's the priority? And it is also, you know, it's such an emotional debate as well, I, which is really illustrated in that in that whole discussion that was in the committee about how on both sides with the ACLU and then also with lawmakers how personally they take one prison issues and then also attacks or perceived attacks on what either advocates are doing or lawmakers are doing. Um, I'm sorry so. but I, I take this kind of personal because we've worked really hard in this committee to decrease our prison population and some of the folks who are sitting around here have seen this. If it wasn't for this committee, for the past 10 years, pushing to get people out of correctional facilities and into a better environment, you'd have a thousand more people incarcerated than you do now. Again, so help us. Yes, I mean, again, I acknowledge and thank you and appreciate all of the work that has gone into this project. And no offense is intended. And there's still more work to be done as I think everybody recognizes. So. James Duffelisle says this in terms of, you know, we're, we have the same goal. It's just we may disagree on, on how to get there. How did the committee members respond to that sentiment? I mean, do they agree that they're kind of working towards the same goal? Well, you know, it, it changed throughout that, however long it was, hour. You know, in the, in the beginning, it was very much talking to the ACLU, your tactics are not, are not what we would strive for. But then towards the end and after um, Lyle spoke, and then also after each committee member really had their say and kind of aired their frustration, uh, the committee chair, um, Alice Emmons, who's a Democrat, 
uh, from Springfield, you know, said, you know, I do believe we have um, similar goals here and that we can work together. And that it's really the importance of working together on this and not working separately. And then we keep getting fought back and forth to stop making progress. And we've got to start making progress because something drastic is going to happen in one of our facilities. And, and since then, uh, James has been in the State House, um, and he's been speaking with Alice outside of committee, as well as in committee. He's, he's testified again, uh, I believe, twice again this week. So, you know, already since that happened on Friday last week, the dialogue seems to be going forward, and it seems to be productive. Vermont isn't the only state dealing with this kind of debate. Researchers say overcrowding in correctional facilities is raising similar questions around the country but especially when it comes to female populations. In 2016, some of our researchers compiled all of the data that the federal government has received from jails across the country. And when they were compiling all of this data in one place and looking at it in the aggregate, the rates for women really jumped off the page. This is Liz Swavola, a researcher at the Vera Institute of Justice, who studied the gender gap in correctional facilities. The growth of women in jails has been incredibly dramatic since the 1970s. The number of women in jails has increased 14-fold compared to 5-fold for men. And so we were really struck by just how dramatically that growth had been happening. And women in jails and in prison as well have become the fastest growing segment of the incarcerated population. And what are some of the factors that lead to that? I mean, why is that happening? So we wrote a report in 2016 called Overlooked Women in Jails in an Era of Reform. And we set out to answer that question of why, why this dramatic growth in the number of women in jails. And what we found is that there's been very little research and very little data collected. What we do know is that law enforcement has increasingly come to focus on lower level offenses. And um, what is defined as a crime has has really expanded in our our legislation over time. And so as that has happened, women who tend to come into the system on lower level charges, things like drug offenses, property, disorderly conduct, and other public order crimes, they have been swept into the system. And then when they get there, um, a lot of the processes and protocols are not designed for them because they do make up a smaller portion of the incarcerated population. And so they're encountering a system designed for men and that disadvantages them in many ways, even things that may seem gender neutral, like assigning cash bail um, in order for, for a woman to be released can disadvantage her because women tend to be financially more marginalized than their, than men coming into the system. Um, and then things like pretrial supervision and probation, again, are not designed with women's particular needs in mind. And I'm curious, once you, you know, have kind of isolated those trends, what then are the consequences? I mean, you know, when you're looking at that nationally, what are the consequences both for the women who are in that system and for their communities so women are coming into the system with a lot of needs. They have experienced significant trauma. Almost universally, women in jails and prisons have experienced sexual violence, domestic violence, um, childhood abuse. So their needs are pretty great. And they you know, have higher rates of serious mental illness than men. 
and they um, have high rates of substance use. So when they're coming into the system, they already have needs, and then you know, incarceration is incredibly destabilizing and often fails to, to meet those needs and, and exacerbates the disadvantages that women are bringing with them into the system. Um, they're also largely mothers. So women in jails, about 79% of them are mothers, and often they're single mothers, and it's about 60% of women in prison. And so when they are incarcerated, because they are often the primary caregiver of their children, custody needs to be figured out. And, you know, it either falls to a family member or to foster care. And so that separation can be deeply devastating. And after a time of incarceration may prevent women from reuniting with their their children altogether. Amanda said this was a major factor that kept her in the system. We do have a different connection to our children than men do. And most women, myself included, once we are separated from our children, that creates a wound in and of itself, a trauma in and of itself. And then, I'll speak for myself, I continued to self-medicate, to use drugs, simply because I couldn't be with my children. If they had found a way for me to, to repay the system, so to speak, for my crime, while allowing me to continue to be with my children and be in their life, even if it's on a supervised situation, I don't think I would have gone down the, I know I wouldn't have gone down the path I went down. I continue to, to dive headfirst into drugs because I couldn't be with my kids. And that's the case with a lot of women. It just, it destroys us. It breaks us. It does. The system sort of convinces, especially women, that, that we're not. You know, that we're defective, that we have some sort of moral deficiency, that we're terrible mothers, daughters, wives, and you adopt that as your identity. It, it becomes really suffocating and you, and you start to feel like, maybe I am that person, maybe I am not, maybe I'm not worth anything better than that. And it takes other people outside, that's what I found anyways, take other people outside of myself to show me that I'm worth more than that, that I deserve better than that. I asked Liz how she thinks policymakers should go about changing that system when they're also dealing with aging facilities. A lot of the facilities you know, were built in the 70s and the 80s. And you know, in 1970s, 73% of counties reported having zero women in their jails. And now with this dramatic, dramatic growth, many jails are reaching crisis point because they just don't have the, the space for women. And so they're considering, do they send women to other jurisdictions? Do they... Um, use a different facility, sometimes it's a juvenile facility for women, or do they build more beds? And so I think the, the very first step in the process has to be understanding the population, how it has changed over time, um, you know, what the growth has been like, what's been driving that growth, understanding um, what charges are bringing women into the system, um, how long are they staying, are there ways to move their, their cases more efficiently and more effectively. You know, one caution that I often offer to jurisdictions when considering new jail construction or new facility construction is that often the tendency is to build bigger um, and to create more space because our jails and our prisons are overcrowded. And so the first instinct is to build and then it's to build 
bigger. And I do acknowledge that many of our facilities are in really deplorable conditions. And so we need to also be thinking about how to improve conditions. But when you are focused only on construction, what often happens is you build a new facility and it's almost immediately over capacity because you haven't addressed the underlying systemic changes that need to take place. Um, there's there's always room um, for reform and to there are most likely people in your facility who absolutely do not need to be there and could be safely managed in the community. So we can't build our way out of the mass incarceration crisis. Kit, what is the outlook for this section of the Capitol bill right now? It really looks like it's set, but that being said, the ACLU has been discussing ways of really looking at this and, and, and bringing up ideas about studying the best way to look into cutting the prison population. So even though the, this funding looks very much set in stone, it's, it's, it's again been very proactive in actually this House committee looking at possible ways of moving forward on, on this plan of cutting down the prison population and looking at programs also for in the prison as well that they can incorporate into their prison design within this funding as well. Gotcha. But we'll know, you know, with the session ending probably about a week from now, we'll know pretty soon exactly where that lands. Yes. But there could be more conversation about this and probably will be more conversation about this in the future. I think based on what's happened this session, if that did not happen, I would be shocked. Thanks, Kit. Thanks, Mike. You can find all of our reporting on CRCF and the future of Vermont's women's prison at vtdigger.org. The Deeper Dig is our weekly podcast. Every Friday, we go deep on one key story that we've been following. You can hear more at vtdigger.org or search for The Deeper Dig wherever you listen to podcasts. One more request, VT Digger's spring fundraising drive is happening now. We're a nonprofit news organization, and we rely on reader support for about 40% of our budget. If you value this kind of in-depth reporting, please consider making a contribution. Just head to vtdigger.org slash donate. We used music this week by Blue Dot Sessions and Lee Rosevere. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. Have a nice weekend.